0: Hey, Labor Wave listeners, we're presenting here a special crossover episode with Joseph Orozco of the Ineres Project for Alternative Futures. I was an invited guest on the Onaris Project to discuss a recent article I posted to the Labor Wave Radio on the hashtag scholar strike. And what we discussed were the limits of hashtag activism, the need to focus on organizing co-workers and building organizations rather than just broad appeals to the masses or people in your echo chambers, and the difference between pretend strikes and real strikes, where Pretend strikes are just slapping the banner of a strike on any activity that you might execute, while real strikes are strategic withdrawals of labor power at the point of production. You can read the full article on our website at laborwaveradio.com And if you enjoy our show and want to help support us, you can do so by becoming a patron at patreon.com backslash laborwave. Also, please like and follow our content on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts, and leave us reviews because that helps us expand our reach to new listeners.
1: Welcome back, everyone. My name is uh, Dr. Joseph Orozco. I'm a professor of philosophy at Oregon State University. and I'm also the co-director of the Inaris Project for Alternative Futures. The Inaris Project is a forum for conversations, initiatives, projects that imagine a future free of exploitation domination, oppression, war, and empire. One of our projects is this podcast, which is conversation with scholars, organizers, and social change agents, in which we try to explore different features of how to make social change in the world today. Uh, My guest today, uh, which I'm really excited uh, to uh, uh, get into today, is uh, uh, Alex Riccio. Alex Riccio is a former Uh, Anaresti, uh, someone who uh, was uh, sort of at the beginning of the Anares project uh, and has collaborated with us in a lot of ways. And he's moved on to his own projects, which I want to talk about today. Uh, He is currently the host and creator of uh, Labor Waves Radio, which is a podcast dedicated to labor organizing. And for many years, he has worked as a labor organizer uh, for higher ed education uh, unions and also for uh, skilled trade uh, unions. He now is on the East Coast doing labor organizing as a full-time job. But I wanted to speak to Alex about an article that he recently wrote uh, in which he analyzed uh, a, an event that took place last month called Scholar Strike. Scholar Strike was an attempt of different uh, academics around the country to provide some kind of context and understanding awareness raising about Black Lives Matter protests and also the history of law enforcement and racial injustice in the United States. And Alex wrote, uh, I think, a really interesting uh, piece for Labor Wave Radio, which I wanted to discuss with him today. So, welcome, Alex. Thanks for being here and spending some time with us.
0: Yeah. I, it's going to be really fun talking to you about this.
1: Good. Um, I wanted to um, I wanted to ask you first, just to sort of get into this. Like, um, you've been a labor organizer for a lot of years in a different variety of of work areas, right? Like I mentioned, higher education and now uh, skilled trades. Um, what initially attracted you to the idea of labor organizing? Um, what Radicalized you to think that this kind of political work was something that you wanted to devote your career to doing?
0: I mean, I think that realistically answering that is like a whole life story, honestly. Like the entire life experience and background of growing up working class, raised by a single mom, has shaped my political views and like what I think is effective, but also who I think the agents of change are. So, you know, my attraction to labor organizing really comes from a fundamental belief. That the grave diggers of capitalism are the working class, uh, but that that's informed by just knowing and working alongside and observing people that you would call ordinary people being capable of taking power in their own hands and emancipating themselves in various ways. Like I think that the working class, and like you said, in higher ed, I've had that experience. Now I get to work with people in like manufacturing industries and stuff, folks that you just from afar would probably not anticipate are revolutionary leaders in any way or liberation leaders or agents of their own change they can be extraordinarily surprising Uh, so that's what motivates me to it because the labor movement itself is very very geared in intention towards engaging the masses and unfortunately i don't think a lot of like leftist organizing participates in social change in that way like they tend to be very self-selecting insular and in some ways you know if i'm being a little less charitable, guilty of elitism and like who they actually think has the capacity and powers to change their own lot in life. So that, that's why I'm very, very passionate about labor organizing. And I think you know, it fits more with my background and my specific, my specific lens on how I look at the world.
1: Well, I think that th- that's a really interesting, uh, uh take actually, because it sort of, I think it informs the viewpoint that you brought to this article that you wrote for, uh, Labor Wave Radio on your, on your website. Um, so in this article that you wrote, I, I mean, I want to get right into this because I think it's really, uh, um, it has so many things we can talk about. So. You argued that this scholar strike that began as a hashtag right on Twitter, that the scholar strike against racial injustice and police violence was seriously limited because what you saw going on in it it was uh, an expression of a certain kind of nostalgia for radical politics. I was wondering if you could explain a little bit about what the scholar strike was and what its purported aims seem to be. Like, what were these folks trying to accomplish? And for a complete uh, transparency, I have to admit that I participated in the scholar strike uh, and gave a talk uh, for uh, a local teaching that we did at Oregon State University that was organized by some colleagues. So they put out a call to uh, participate in the scholar strike. And so there was a group of about 15 or 20 of us that gave all day long uh, different talks on, on on racial injustice and police violence. And so uh, uh, I did participate in this in some way. And so I wanted to see uh, what you thought about what this was trying to accomplish. What was going on in this day?
0: Well, well, shame on you for being so naive to participate in the Scholars Check. <laughs> uh, you know, honestly, I think what folks were really trying to do was meaningfully participate in the moment. Right, we had seen this explosion of activity around Black Lives Matter and the scholar strike. They named it specifically that they were motivated and inspired by the NBA athletes that went on a wildcat strike. So, in the wake of George Floyd being murdered by police, NBA athletes that were in the middle of their postseason, their playoffs, that I was all excited to watch too, decided to wage a wildcat strike, and that wildcat strike spread to professional athletes uh, across different leagues, and it was incredibly inspiring moment to see these athletes do that and i think reasonably enough people wanted to feel like they could be a part of that movement that they can participate meaningfully so i think that's what the goal was right meaningful participation uh i guess where i kind of landed on it was that it wasn't a strike and i do think that words have a meaning and you really should apply those meanings in specific ways if you call everything a strike then nothing's a strike, right? And that there's a specific tactical logic behind the strike and what the players were doing, and I was slightly bothered by the fact that these scholars, whilst professing to be professing, right, to be inspired by players and what they were doing, were not deriving any of the lessons or even taking any of the risk that these players were participating in. I mean, they were actually withdrawing their labor, taking real risk, putting themselves out there in you know vulnerable ways. And the scholars turn around and effectively kind of did the same thing they would do any day of the week, give like a digital conference, maybe talk about their research in various ways, spotlight, you know, I think it's laudable to spotlight racist oppression and give an analysis to it. But it was just the way they were professing themselves to be participating in this movement really irked me because, quite frankly, I don't even know if you would qualify that as a protest.
1: Right. So so part of what was going on from my I understood, and this attracted like um, hundreds of people around the country, it started off, as you said, uh, like you point out, is a kind of a, a Twitter hashtag. And the idea was there were a two folk uh, were calling people to have some kind of event on campus, on their own campuses, in their own ways, and to do essentially digital presentations that would then be linked to this uh, this hashtag. And I think that there was also a website that they created that you could register for, and that somehow this would list all of the different people who were essentially that day giving video talks about some aspect or another of police violence or, or racial injustice. So essentially it was a call to do a digital conference in, in some way or another. Uh, this was done uh, sort of early September, so some people were in session Um, and teaching classes. But for like us here at Oregon State, we don't start uh, until later because we're on a uh, quarter system. So uh, no one was on the job at the time that was participating in the scholar strike. Mm. Uh, So uh, there was no labor being withdrawn because technically, I think for most of the people at Oregon State, we were not uh, technically working. Uh, So it was a showcasing of, of, of academic research and labor in some way.
0: Right. And I think like, so the play-by-play that I witnessed, and this is my impression of it, was that the NBA players went on strike It spread. It was a very successful wildcat strike on its own terms. And in that excitement, a professor tweets out something about how professors should join in on this moment. And it went viral, as the kids like to say. And I think in the excitement around the kind of attention it was receiving on Twitter, they just tried to seize this opportunity. And said, like, let's just do a two-day thing. But the framing of what they were doing was pretty suspect. They called for people to participate if they can, anywhere you're at. It was a very, like, kind of amorphous, decentralized thing. And what it turned out to be was like YouTube 10 minute presentations. And they did start housing it on a website. So it's like an educational hub now. And it shifted from being a scholar strike to being more of a teach in. And they were trying to describe it as somehow a recasting of direct action. And so. I'm trying to be generous, but I do get really bothered when I hear people try to say things like recasting direct action. Like It really empties the content and meaning of these terms, like direct action. How is participating on a conference on your own time, if you're willing and if you're able, in any way, direct action, when you don't have any targets spelled out, you're not like focusing on any specific institutions, and you're not trying to leverage anything while you're doing it.
1: Yeah, I, this is, uh, gets me to, you know, what I wanted to talk about, because you have uh, three, in your article, you have sort of three main areas that you felt that the scholar strike um, failed, or you have criticisms of it in some sense. Um, part of it has to do with the, uh, the sense that um, there were some misunderstandings in the way that this language of strike and direct action is being used, because the original sort of call to do something had this, this kind of radical sense that we are reshaping the nature of radical politics through this scholarship. I mean it was it was a it was a call to action in a very kind of uh, radical way that we're doing something different and we're going to have some kind of impact. but your your article suggests that uh, the way that this was cast was misunderstanding a lot of things. so first uh, and maybe we can go through these carefully right One of the things that you said was that, uh, the, the Scholar Strike uh, misunderstood the idea of creating a, a Twitter platform for actually reaching workers, right? So creating a, a platform uh, that can broadcast ideas is different than reaching out and organizing with your fellow workers in terms of what we might think of in terms of base building. So mm-hmm. one thing. Second, you said that it confused awareness building for actually withdrawing labor, right? And so what a lot of folks were doing in these 10-minute presentations was trying to maybe raise consciousness, raise awareness of these issues. Uh, But that's different than actually withholding your labor as a demonstration of power. And then finally, you said that it was appealing, rather, it seems, to a kind of a general public to participate by watching passively these videos. Instead of try and organize people to direct energy at very specific targets with demands about what should be done. right? So whereas the player strike, uh, like they were withdrawing their labor and saying, we want certain things done, bosses. This was sort of, hey, why don't you watch my 10-minute video? This is going to raise awareness and lead to big changes. And you think that that whole sort of call really misunderstands the nature of organizing and of power could you explain a little bit about these kinds of misunderstandings that scholars strike engaged in that made it essentially in your view kind of ineffective
0: yeah sure so i think like one at a time the first thing around twitter platforms is misconstruing base building So, you know, it feels really good to have thousands of Twitter followers, I'm certain, right? I don't, but I'm certain it feels really good. And it can be easy to, like, get caught up in that echo chamber that Twitter creates. I mean, Twitter's algorithms literally generate echo chambers and make you feel like you are on a much bigger platform than you actually have. But, you know it's one thing to appeal to people on Twitter. It's another thing to get out there and like talk to your coworkers. And what I was talking about earlier in our conversation around ordinary people, right? Like the masses at large. I'm really a big proponent of what Jane McLeavy calls bounded constituencies and structure-based organizing. And what she means by that is um, uh, actually, in addition to that, the layer that I like too is the IWW approach to organizing. They always say the worker's, don't need to be organized. What needs to be understood is that workers are already organized within institutions not of their own choosing, right? So there's already ways that we are conditioned and configured to share space together. There's already ways that we are created in bounded constituencies. What I think a good organizing approach does is it locates those bounded constituencies and applies a structure-based approach approach to base building, which if you're a professor at the University of Pennsylvania with no union, and also just had a recently failed graduate worker union because of private sector labor law, there's your bounded constituency right in front of you. It's not like on Twitter and in this decentralized interwebs. It's your office space. It's the people like right alongside you. Just look sideways, and you will see plenty of people of color being exploited in positions of adjunct and instructor work and graduate student work. So that was one thing that I find just to be telling about the approach being adopted here was that they weren't really trying to actually engage with people outside of their own bubble. Purposefully or not, I think if you rely exclusively on online technology and social media to do all the organizing work, what you're doing is taking a shortcut and you're substituting talking to everybody within a bounded constituency your co-workers specifically and you got to talk to your co-workers from the business school that you think aren't going to be on board you got to talk to everybody and try to create this kind of base that actually has power in a particular institution so they didn't try to do that at all like they just weren't trying to swell up power in any f- meaningful way um, the second part about there being kind of this misunderstanding around consciousness raising as power. Now, this is something that I'm maybe a little idiosyncratic about, but I think that it speaks to bad tendencies in social movement organizing in general, where like everybody today seems convinced that the way you like change the world is by having the most enlightened political line possible. Like you just train people to understand theory and the analysis. And then with this great education, I guess somehow the world changes. It's like, that's the piece that's completely lacking. It's like, great, I'm so educated. Now I got my PhD in whatever topic it might be. What do I do with that? How does that actually translate into power? I, I don't think what we need is perfectly construed political lines and ideology. I think what we need is organization. We need organizations that are capable of waging class struggle, that are capable of waging anti-racist struggle. like That's what I think is being missed here, is that the problem is obviously consciousness raising matters, but that's like a supplemental tactic within a broader strategy. And a lot of times what I see is people begin and end with the campaign, with the PR campaign, with just like slogans and hashtags and like just reading groups that are circular and insular in nature and just kind of like preach a political line and anticipate that that's somehow going to manifest itself into some kind of form of power. And, like, quite frankly, this is me being maybe a little bit more cynical, but the ruling class totally knows what the hell. What, I'm going to try to self censor and not curse on your program here. The ruling class totally knows what's going on. Like, they, it's not like we're going to enlighten them and argue our way through political power. I, I see this happen actually in labor organizing, too, when like you sit down on a negotiation table, there's this desperate need to feel like you have to win the debate across the table from the bosses. And what I'd say is, like, even if we get them to repeat back to us exactly our argument and all of the coherent logics and admit that we're right about everything, it doesn't mean that we win. Like it doesn't mean that they have to sign away some of their power. That's just not how it works. It's not enough. No. Yeah, I mean,
1: when, uh, the, uh, to, just to focus on that, um, um, it, it seems that a lot of, um, you know, I, I've seen a lot of these different kinds of events take place in the past year or so uh, around campus locally or nationally like the Scholar Strike, but this idea that if we just raise awareness of these issues in some way or another, we are contributing to the the struggle, right? And so if, if I may, I think that part what might be also going on is that Right. Since May, we've seen you know millions of largely young people out on the streets uh, across the nation. Right. Uh, scholars are looking and noticing that this is probably one of the largest social movements in U.S. history. And so there's probably millions of young people out there risking their lives and infection with covid and all this kind of stuff, uh, risking their lives with confrontation with heavily militarized police. And there's probably a lot of faculty uh, for various reasons or another. Some, I'm sure, have gone out there onto the streets as well. But I imagine that there's quite a lot also that have not and are feeling powerless. Like, I want to do something. I want to contribute to this. And so what I bring to it is my ability to produce a 10-minute lecture on the history of police violence. Mm-hmm. And I hope that that's going to do something. So I imagine that part of it is a sense of... um. Powerlessness amongst academics who feel that they don't, they can't be out on the streets for whatever reasons or another, um, or don't want to. Mm -hmm. And they want to do what they do. And what they know to do is to talk and to provide analysis. But part Mm -hmm. of what's interesting about what you're saying is that analysis may be important, but it's not necessarily what's going to get us wins. And and it's not necessarily just being out on the street either. That's going to get us wins. You you have you're you're saying that this has to be strategic, right? Yeah. If we're going to make demands on power, right? But the idea of awareness raising in and of itself by itself doesn't necessarily get us to organizing for power. In your view, would is, would you say that that's correct?
0: yeah, I think that's right. And you know, honestly, I don't I think I feel sympathetic to that desire to like participate and feel like you can lend some kind of power. And I think it makes a lot of sense for academic workers to believe that their role in social movements is to provide some kind of educational foundation. It definitely makes a lot of sense though, but at the same time, it has to be part of something larger than that. Uh, and what I saw here happening with the scholar strike was, realistically, an opportunity to build something, to build an actual organization, to put together a strategy that could have some legs. And I think that these folks just missed this opportunity, and they missed it because they kind of reverted back to what was already kind of normal and natural to them to do. Um, and in, in being a little bit more critical here, I also think it's just very telling and revealing about the nature of the academy itself. Higher education today is such a pure liberal space, and by that I mean it is populated by people that genuinely feel that the way the world changes is through the force of ideas, that the motive force of history is ideas and ideas alone, and therefore history is basically the product of like individuals with their grand theories that have like propelled things towards some form of progress or another. And people will definitely never accept that that's the way they look at it, If particularly if they're like a radical professor. But the way they behave and the way they act demonstrates quite to the contrary because all of their participation up to this point has led to this kind of uh, PR campaigns, you know, this awareness raising, just like constantly saying, like, let's just sit down and think this through and talk it to death. And a lot of times in talking things through, they tend to deconstruct and like, decontextualized even the forms of tactical power we might have. Like it is not uh, an unknown experience that I've had in the higher ed of hearing professors talk about how labor strikes don't have the same power that they used to, you know, trying to caution against picket lines and so on and so forth. So I, I just think there's a lot actually underneath the surface going on there that, you know, we should be critical of. And yes, like you're saying, Awareness alone does not equal power. Like the power comes from utilizing what sources and places we are making the world in society. And when I'm looking at professors, the way that you are making the world is by reproducing the academy every single day. Like you make the academy functional and therefore your power is to make it not functional. I mean, I just think it's really as plain as day. Uh, and it's surprising to me for like highly educated people to be so confused ideologically on that point.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that part of what you're hitting at is something that I think, uh, you know, interestingly in the the news uh, these days, right, uh, critical race theory, the work of folks like uh, uh, Derek Bell, Richard Delgado, Kimberly Crenshaw, other folks like that, who have pointed out that uh, this is an analysis that uh, they've done, and particularly Derek Bell, right, that there's a distinction between what they call racial idealism and racial realism. Uh, and so specifically for talking about like trying to achieve racial justice, one of the barriers is the sense, as you've articulated, uh, of racial idealism, namely the idea that racism and racial oppression is the result of people thinking uh, poorly about their fellow citizens, right, or having discriminatory attitudes or being ignorant. And so the the tack there, if you are a racial idealist, is to Focus on getting people to have more education about the history maybe of racial injustice, discrimination, or another way of doing it is doing racial sensitivity, right? It's just let's, let's try to train us to be more empathetic to one another. And so with more knowledge and better sensitivity, racism will disappear in some way or another. And critical race theorists have been saying for several decades now, this is a recipe for failure because r- racism in the United States is not a matter of ideas in the head that you need to attack; it's a matter of structures and of power, and we need to sort of organize in some way to create leverage. Uh, and so, in some sense, I think that what you're, you're you're talking about chimes in with a lot of this work that people have been talking about. Uh, maybe part of the reason why. I've President Trump, for instance, finds the this kind of way of thinking so dangerous is because it's really about, not about changing people's awareness necessarily, though that can help, but really changing power and structure and trying to figure out like what the power is around you that you need to find to be able to make social change. Uh, and so you have, I mean, I think that you have a, a particularly strong belief in the idea that this can happen. Uh I mean, I know that Derek Bell, and we've talked about this before, but, you know, Derek Bell doesn't think that this is going to come very easily if we're talking about racial justice in the United States, because attacking that power structure is is a formidable task. Um, yeah. But, you know, one thing I wanted to talk about with you, too, as I mentioned at the beginning, was that a lot of what's going on in your piece is you're talking about how what the scholar strike did and what a lot of organizing and, and activist politics is about today is a certain kind of nostalgia. And I really like how you emphasize this. So the, so uh, let me set this up and say this. Um, in the scholar strike, there seemed to be a nostalgia for the teaching, this kind of practice that started, you know, largely with the, the anti-war, Vietnam War movement in the 60s and 70s, where uh, there's some kind of event on campus where professors come out and talk about uh, the war, or whatever issue it is, and so the the scholar strike had this kind of nostalgia for the radicalness of the teaching, uh, and at the same time they were saying they were doing something even more radical. They were recasting direct action with the scholar strike. So you said that that's um, that was largely not true, and also that it missed the mark on being a teaching. So I was wondering if you can explain a little bit about that like how did the scholar strike in your view just really miss the mark as a form of radical politics and turned into a kind of odd nostalgia for a radicalism long gone
0: Well I think for one thing like it would be hard to say what impact the scholar strike had so if we're just talking about in terms of like the power that they were able to gain the concessions that they were able to gain we have no way to measure any of that because they didn't even take the time to try to measure those impacts. Like they didn't have any targets. They didn't have any specific institutions or any demands that they were leveraging. So therefore, how could we even assess the effectiveness of the scholar strike? I think that that's kind of telling in and of itself. But the idea around the misplaced nostalgia, it really comes more, like this is not unique or something that I came up with. It's came out of a conversation that I had with Natasha Leonard on the show, where she was talking about this too in the wake of, um Black Lives Matter, there was not just the scholar strike talking about teachings as a form of like sixties radicalism to like reinvoke, but also like marches and nonviolent protest and forms like this. This is consistently invoked over and over and over again. And I've seen it happen in real time where you will get this this uh, call to go to like a protest action and it'll turn out to be like a little rally and march, at, you know, a county courthouse People will stand there for a few hours. They'll talk. They'll get on the bullhorn, march around the street for a few minutes, maybe a half hour, maybe even sit down in the middle of the road, nonviolently protesting. And then they all leave and they say, we're going to do it again next week or whatever it might be. You know, you just kind of have to wonder how many times am I supposed to show up and walk in circles before this accomplishes anything? And what I think is being missed there is the reason that these tactics were effective in the past was not just the aesthetics of the protest itself, was not just how it looked on the surface, the fact that there's just people on the road. It was like what it communicated to power in that time. If you were to organize a mass march in the 60s, it required extensive on-the-ground organizing, like conversations with so many people. The information did not pass as quickly as it does today. It was not as easy as just being a popular figure on Twitter Putting out a tweet that gets like retweeted over and over, and it's like thousands of people see it, right? That wasn't available then. So it actually demonstrated and displayed the extensive capacity of the people to organize such tactics in the past. Getting 30,000 people to show up to a teach in Berkeley in the 60s was an incredible feat of organizing strength. It showed the people with power and the institutions that were being targeted that quite literally we could whip up our base, and so many more people because this is the capacity we have as organizers. This is what I think is being forgotten, is that it was a threat in those days. In those terms, it was a threat. Today, marches are, quite frankly, fairly easy to whip up. Like Online technologies, in good ways and in negative ways, have made it very, very easy to whip up a march and a protest any weekend of the the year and it communicates nothing anymore. Like, it just doesn't. Like, if there's not another strategy within that, if it's a tactic within a broader strategy that has specific goals that are measurable and has specific targets that you can leverage concessions from, great. But absent those things, your marches are, quite frankly, in my opinion, just a waste of your time and energy. Like, what are they accomplishing? Maybe you have a march, and this is like an opportunity, I think, that the scholar strike could have, as well as these other, um, you know, protest actions is you have an opportunity for the first time to have people in real time together, use that opportunity to actually put together a real plan and follow up with tactics that escalate in intensity and have some targets and demands. What I saw back in Oregon when I was still living there was a reluctance and a refusal to do even that, to even issue demands because you just wait around, wait for somebody else whom I don't know, but some mysterious leader was going to tell us the way and Do nothing risky, like take no risk, have no demands, have no targets. And how does anybody anticipate that's going to work? Like, what is the impact that could possibly have other than potentially just making you feel better for the day? And I mean, that's fine. I think right now is a particularly depressing moment in time. Then again, it's always been a depressing moment in time in the history of capitalism. But still, I understand people's need for like a pick me up. But it's frustrating to me when I see it called a strike and inspired by players that are taking real risk and like demonstrating real organizing lessons and they're all just being ignored and the opportunity is being wasted. That's what frustrates me more than like people kind of ambling around in the dark trying to figure out the way.
1: I mean, I think... uh, um... What you say is really interesting because you can see this also outside of the strike of academic context. right? This is an example I always give with my students about this kind of this new feature of things. Um, back in 2003, uh, during the height of the, the Iraq scare, right after 2001, um, we, there's this historical day that I always mark, right, which is February 15th, 2003, Uh, That's the day of one of the single largest global protest movements in human history. It was a synchronous protest against the invasion, the U.S. invasion of Iraq. Millions of people all across the planet, all across the United States and major cities had these huge rallies and they were saying no to war in Iraq. Uh, And so. You know, it just felt—I remember at this moment because there was a, a there was about three thousand people here in Corvallis. We had a rally, we had a march, and then there were speakers right at the county courthouse. And it felt like you know when we saw that there were places like in New York or Los Angeles, Chicago, Berlin, people with the same message. It, it felt powerful. But then a month later, right, President Bush said, "Look, I don't make decisions based on public opinion," and the invasion of Iraq took place in March of two thousand three. It was at that moment I realized that I think that what you're talking about is true, that there's a different terrain now in terms of politics. It doesn't matter to have millions of people out in the streets in the ways that it did in the 1960s and the 1970s, because that kind of symbolic power is, is very surface. And I think that a lot of leaders realize that there's not deep organizing going on underneath uh, so there's an aesthetic going on and perhaps maybe uh, an important kind of sense for the individual to participate in those kinds of things. But as moments of change or leverage for or power, there, there's something else going on now, right? That, that, that those kinds of mass rallies and mobilization doesn't have the same kind of feeling for. But yet, and this is the sort of nostalgia you're talking about, it seems as though when people think that they want to do something more than just vote. Or more than just write an angry letter to the editor. That's the place that they go to. Let's have a rally. Let's have a march. And so it seems as though we really need to think about alternatives. Like, if that's not really going to change things, and we saw that millions of people around the world weren't able to stop a destructive war at the beginning of the 21st century, what's the alternative? And in your article, you say, look, the alternative to all of this kind of symbolic, perhaps ineffective, politics is building organizations so that academics you say if they want to really make change they need to build organizations particularly faculty unions could you could you explain why you think that that's the alternative that needs to be talked about
0: yeah and i mean i guess i would say like i don't even see it as much an alternative i think that these are lessons that we should have known all along right i think some of this is like trying to actually read the histories of social change more accurately because these are things that we've always known have been affected, but they've kind of been lost in the ether. Like to your point about millions of people in the street trying to protest the invasion of Iraq, you know, if public opinion mattered. We'd have like universal healthcare, right? Like we've had public opinion has tracked to the left of, you know, the political leaders for decades and decades. And it means nothing. Like it does not influence their quest for maintaining their political power and expanding it. Uh, It's not enough. Now, I think building organizations is this opportunity that we have in these moments of like insurrection and even some spontaneous outpouring of energies. Those give us opportunities. If there's not an organization that already existed prior to that, that helps spur that about. It gives us the opportunity to create them and expand them and try to sustain that energy in a particular direction, and that's what I think the scholar strike was really missing. Was like I know that one of the professors that I called for it is at the University of Pennsylvania, where there's no unions. There's zero unions at this campus. It's a wealthy campus. It's an Ivy League campus. It is a huge block of like landscape in the city of Philadelphia. There is so much material power there that is potential power that's unused. So that's just one type of organization, but like it's a very obvious linkage. If you're a faculty, if you're a tenured professor in particular, you have a lot more security, you have a lot more stability in your job, and you have the ability to take strategic risk on behalf of a broader base. Like you have adjuncts and instructors at your universities. We know today and this is probably actually a, a over optimistic estimate that 30% of the faculty workforce and universities are tenured, just 30%. So the increasing proletarianization of the academy is well with us. Like It's already here, and it's just going to get worse. I think, quite frankly, Joseph, you're the last generation of tenured professors we're probably going to see. And I think that if that was understood and recognized, tenure track and tenure professors would understand that. The conditions, the material and working conditions of adjuncts and instructors, and even graduate students as well, shape their conditions as well. Your opportunities and possibilities for the future are very much circumscribed by the exploitation of those underneath you. And I would include in that the entire academic workforce, right? That also includes custodians, includes landscapers, includes housing and dining workers. Like that's your obligation right there is to build power with those workers, because you all have a bounded constituency that you make up together, and you have specific targets. Your specific targets are your bosses, and bosses are the rulers of academies these days or administrators, higher tier administrators, not the clerical administrators that, quite frankly, I think belong in the unions with faculty and staff and grads. But these are the folks that you can build a base with and leverage power and gain concessions from those bosses and universities too their history and their legacy is a accumulation of dispossession and colonization and racial exploitation i mean land-grant universities in particular it's like in the damn (laughs) name like how do you think they got that land it was by dispossessing the indigenous people that were already there so a better call for racial justice i just don't think could be found like if you're in a university system, and you have that position, you have that perch, and you desire racial justice, then liberate your colleagues, because that's where you'll find racial justice. Like, those endowments belong to the masses. You know, expropriation is desirable here, and is something that you can acquire. But you have to, like, do the long, methodical work of building that capacity and power. And that takes, quite frankly, I think it's not, like, any secret. I think it's actually just committing to having conversations with many, many people if you're just talking to at least five colleagues in a given week that you maybe don't have conversations with regularly about these subjects, about your position within the academy and your position to gain power by uniting under shared goals, that's that's how you organize unions. That's how you build organizations. And I think that is true for any type of cause that you might have. And if it's like a tenants organization that is fighting the power of landlords, like this is... About finding that bounded constituency, where, what's the history of like what even allowed this configuration of power to exist in the first place? Like landlords didn't just exist, you know, out of thin air. There's a reason that they rose to prominence as a class of property deletes. How did that happen? How does it impact your specific locale? And which ways are you actually shared together under the same opponent? You know, there's lots of slumlords. And I anticipate if you're like looking around Philadelphia, you probably have a single ward for many, many city blocks. And there is your bounded constituency right there. And the source of that landlord's power is your rent. If that's how they gain all of their power and profit is through exploiting you. Uh, I just think you can continue to have that same lesson wherever you may look. And that's like the goal for organizers and people that want to participate in social change is to locate yourself in time and place and find out where is your power. You know, I joined as a labor organizer because I recognized my power was as a worker and a working class person. I had the ability to communicate amongst these populations of folks. I had the ability to turn inward and look at the institution that was employing me and start trying to figure out how to build power against it. And I'm continuing to do that. Now, I think other people are skilled in different ways and can do that with tenants, can do that with racial justice organizations. And they are. And that's what's so frustrating about the scholar strike because it's like what who are you observing like why did you think organizing a digital conference and realistically just delaying your work for two days i don't even believe any of these folks actually went on strike in any meaningful sense of the term like it's not like you're you're just going to respond to that email two days from now if you're not responding today from your students or whomever uh what lessons are you observing because there are so many people out in the streets figuratively literally whatever you want to say, building power wherever they're at. And you're out here just kind of on the sidelines, just being a mouthpiece to make yourself feel good and have the aesthetics of participation without any of the substance.
1: So the the lessons then that you would say is, is locate yourself in time and space. Uh, look around, as you said, side to side and who are your colleagues and Try to work for base building, building connections and organ and 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 relationships. Uh, to get rid of this sense of awareness, uh, uh, raising as your main function if you're an academic worker, but but try to really think about how to leverage power. What's your power? So for academic workers, it's withholding labor power. For tenants, as you said, it's rent striking. And then finally, thinking about how to, um, um, uh, instead of, you know, for the scholar sake, instead of speaking to a wide base of people, of just trying to get whoever you can, focus on trying to uh, really uh, leverage this power at the specific targets that have the ability to do something about the conditions that you're in.
0: Absolutely. And actually, I should say on that note, You know, Another thing that's observable is the lessons that the Graduate Employee Organization at the University of Michigan has demonstrated. They are a labor union that went on strike recently. Mm -hmm. Uh, To my knowledge, the only strike that's happened in higher ed prior to a fall reopening amongst this pandemic and amongst their demands was a demand to disarm and defund the campus police. And it's just as clear as plain as day. Black Lives Matter has issued the call to defund and disarm the police. Some of these labor organizations are looking at their own organizations and trying to figure out how do we create distance between us and police and not participate in enabling their power. And then these labor, these grad unionists are doing it to their own institution. Uh, and I and I know that that call is happening amongst many institutions right now in higher ed. Uh, so I just find it very frustrating to observe this opportunity, this like platform that these people potentially had. like build something bigger than themselves. And it was just completely squandered because they like refused to issue any demand. The demands were right there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a good point. Well, let me, uh, let me bring this around to uh, you uh, you once again, in the work that you do. Um, A lot of this analysis that you provided has been part of your formative work, not only academically, but also right uh, on the ground in the organizing that you've done in a variety of different ways. And so we've talked about how you're the creator and the main host now of Labor Wave Radio, this podcast that you've been doing for several years. Uh, while you were here in Oregon, in Oregon, you were one of the uh, main organizers for this uh, skill sharing conference, right? The opening space for the radical imagination that you ran for uh, a few years before COVID came and scuttled uh, uh, attempts to do that. Right. Which was an attempt to have a conference, but not just a conference of academic sharing, but bringing organizers and activists together to talk about the work that they were doing in ways that was actively sharing skills and raising capacity uh, and sharing history of struggle. So I wanted to talk about the, this work that you're doing in the context that you have been explaining here Um the kind of media that you create on Labor Wave is uh, about labor organizing and uplifting the working class. So what is the role for working class media and skill sharing right, in, uh, online and for these kinds of conferences, right? Is there a need for a kind of network of working class media? Uh, and is this media or the kind of work that you do with labor wave, is it about awareness raising by itself? Or do you think that you're doing something that is working to build organization to give people a sense of strategy and to, to uh, give them the kind of sense to understand their work so that they can leverage that kind of power? Right. So, the, uh, you know, uh, I guess the question is thinking about um, the idea of building interwebs full of working class media. Is that what you're trying to do? How do you see your own work in all of this?
0: Well, I think to kind of go back a little bit, just step back in terms of like awareness raising and just having a deeper conversation about that. I want to make clear that I don't think awareness raising is a bad thing by any means. I actually think it's a really important thing, but I think what's happening is that the the it's been kind of inverted in terms of the cause and effect. I'm a big believer and I get this a lot from my inspiration of reading and having, you know, lots of conversations among folks of like people like Robin DG Kelly, where knowledge flows from struggle, not the other way around. It's not like the knowledge then incubates struggle and like pops things off. I think it's the other way when people participate in movements is when they expand and when they like learn many, many like clear and vivid lessons. I really think the flow of knowledge happens through struggle first and through building organizations So that's when I think it's important, like the awareness raising of how is it happening? Like what type of awareness raising are we doing? If it's embedded in local communities, within organizations, if it's part of that project, that's when I think it can be really effective. And that's when I think it's really successful. Now, Labor Wave specifically, I mean, it actually did emerge out of a union organization. And my participation in it initially, just for a little history of any listeners that care, was... I was more of like the behind the scenes person. The person that was really wanting to do it was my often guest host now Andrea Havercamp and she wanted the radio program to actually be a broadcast for the local community and specifically for the union itself. Wanted it to be like kind of a mouthpiece of the union just providing news, education, information sharing. Now that was originally how it operated but just people uh, her life got a lot busier, she was a PhD candidate at the same time as doing this couldn't do be everywhere at once. I ended up kind of fitting in. And quite frankly, I don't really think what I'm doing with Labor Wave today means anything. Like, you know, please listen to it, I guess, but <laughs> I'm not going to be very modest. Uh, it's not creating an impact. Uh, for me, it's pleasurable in that I get to talk to people and like make new connections. And maybe, and actually, I have found this coincidentally, sometimes it lands that because I'm participating in. Organizing and organizational building, I link up with some of the people that I've actually had on the show, and some of these prior relationships help expand that. So it's had that kind of lucky, you know, uh, accidents of it. And I would say that that's because I participate in organizational building. But the opening space for the radical imagination was specifically the opposite. Now, that was a conference that was created within the union context itself. The union was the one that had the resources to do it. It was a union project. We had a social justice chair at that time, was the elected person. Her name is Mikanai Arefani. It was largely her idea, and I helped as the staff organizer cultivate it and nurture it and build it. And the whole goal was not just to bring people in, but to also help it broaden the imagination around what the union could do, like what our union work was. It was also about providing some inspiration and motivation for our members and for the students that we participated in and even for some of the faculty folks that we were like working alongside. Now this was the Radical Imagination Conference happened at Oregon State University. So this is when I was doing higher ed work and organizing. I think the reason that I was motivated to do it and that it worked and was effective is because it was embedded in an organization already. And when you do it that way, you really can see a lot of results. You can like build relationships, you can expand them and broaden them and you can help use it to, you know, begin expanding the horizons of what's even possible for the organizing work that you're doing. One of the things that I think is really true about labor unions, this is me putting on my critical hat when it comes to labor organizing is it's not the methods. The methods are actually extremely effective. The one-on-one conversations, you know, building the capacity, the tactics that labor unions use, they work. I think the problem with organized labor at large is the imagination, the political imagination that circumscribes what they think they can even try to accomplish. Their goals are always at the very beginning of the horizon, and they never go above that. And quite frankly, I think we, we could be a little bit more utopian. I actually think we can get to accomplish utopia through labor organizing methods. But we have to have that as our goal and our end point. And I think the Radical Imagination Conference was largely for this union organization that we believed was desiring an expansion of their political imagination in that moment in time. And I will say it wasn't completely credited just to the conference, but the conference did help us start building a bargaining for the common good platform soon after it. It did start bringing in more, uh, leaders that wouldn't have been attracted to the union prior, people started seeing like this is a union. Well, I guess I'm down with this. Uh, so it was really effective in that sense.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's really that's really fascinating because um, uh, I imagine a lot of people think right the way that we've been talking about it here and, and what you've been recommending is right. We need to build unions for power to to make to make change, and people might be saying. I don't want to just be sitting around talking about working conditions and wages all the time, but what you said here was that part of the work that you did with these two media outlets in this conference, right, was to try to, uh, you were grounded in a union, but you were trying to show what else a union can enable amongst its members to think creatively beyond just simply being a labor union member that maybe once in a while participates in collective bargaining. No, you can participate in radio projects, media projects, you can organize a conference to talk with some really interesting theorists, scholars, activists, right, and get a different sense about what is possible and what then your union might then be able to do in regard to those kinds of projects that you imagine. So you expanded the sort of vocabulary in a way about what unions can accomplish for the bounded constituency of the union that you were working with. Uh, So I think that that's, that's, that's really rich. And I'm wondering whether you think that There's a need for working class media like that to do that with organizations, more broadly speaking.
0: I I definitely do. And I mean, you know, what and how that's a harder question for me. I don't think I necessarily have the answers to that. I do just think I would stress like embed them in organizations, embed them in specific locations, you know, deepen them. Don't just make them like. Uh, You know, if you're going to do a podcast, don't just make an approach to just proselytize and like push your own political line, like try to deepen the meaning of why you're doing it. Um, But I do think it's important. I think one place that makes it important is that when working class people speak for themselves, they demonstrate a lot more of their capacity for those that have become very cynical about, you know, the powers that could be realized through organizing and through working class organizations. I mean, quite frankly, this is me again, being like critical against organized labor. A lot of the leadership, a lot of the people that sit at the hierarchy of organized labor very clearly demonstrate that they don't have any confidence in the powers of the working class or the intelligence of the working class. And I am very, very different in that opinion. I I actually take offense at it. Uh, I think almost all culture that is interesting and worthy of like even paying attention to is working class culture uh i mean this is i mean, think about like just going back a little bit the jazz musicians of like the 50s and 60s who were these people these were people that were like stealing leisure time like they were working hard jobs like in exploited sectors of industries and they were making themselves proficient and skilled in this like uh, musical expression in their own time that they stole. And they were creating this movement, this working class culture. I mean, I really do think almost all interesting working class culture is generated from, or all interesting culture, I should say, is generated from the working class when they're stealing leisure time. Uh, yeah. So that's that's an argument that I think probably requires an interesting a lot of theory, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. But I think that for today, it is really beneficial for these things to exist and be created by working class folks themselves. And by the way, the working class is not just some, like, you know, masculine, uh, white person affair. Like, the, the working class is not a white, middle class uh, machinist. That That's just nonsense. Working class is multiracial, multi multigender. multi-gender. I mean, look around you. Who are the poorest and most exploited people? It is not, like, white men, quite frankly, Uh, they're part of it, but that's not the exclusive, you know, configuration of the working class. So I'm saying this, I'm using the very broad and very, I think, specific sense of what working class means. And I think that it's time for working class people to be heard. And I think that through these kind of independent media that they might create, if it's particularly if it has like the backing of an organization, This is an opportunity to demonstrate that, you know, quite frankly, we are the ones that are going to change the world, like not you professionalized labor negotiators, not you political elites, uh, not you CEOs that run great implicit bias trainings. Like all you people can get the fuck out of our way because we're the ones that really are living the experiences, living the struggle, and quite frankly, generate the most insights around that because of our positions in the world. Uh. And yeah, like our movies are better than your movies. Like every, (laughs) I was just listening to Evil Dead. uh, There, that history of how that movie emerged way more interesting than anything that Hollywood ever put out. So I'm gonna leave it at that, I guess.
1: Interesting. Yeah. Well, we have to. uh, I'll have to pick your brain sometime about the uh, what you would identify, if at all, about uh, working class science fiction uh, as opposed to corporate science fiction and what that plays out. Because I think there isn't a distinction like that. I mean, Ursula R. Our inspiration talked about this kind of work too, so that'd be that's another conversation I think we need to have about pop culture. Well, good. Well, thank you. I think that this has been really uh, this has been really interesting. Uh, we'll try to link to uh, your article in Rab- uh, uh, Labor Wave so that people can have a sense of it. But uh, I thank you for your time and helping us to sort of understand a little bit about what are some current configurations of politics and their and their limitations, and maybe what we can move towards for thinking about being radical uh, in a different kind of way
0: yeah thanks a lot Joseph. this was fun
1: all right and thank you all for showing up and spending some time with us uh if you are interested in finding out more about the anaris project you can find us at our website uh, which is at Anaresproject.org. anarisproject.org uh, uh, we're also available in a variety of different social media platforms you can find us at Inaris Project on twitter instagram facebook uh, and we have a few of our podcasts uh, audio only on SoundCloud. But thank you for uh, spending some time with us. And you, uh, if you'd like to, please subscribe to some of our other uh, uh, videos in this series on organiz- on conversations with organizers. And we'd love to hear from you, too. Leave us a comment. Thanks once again, Alex.
0: Thank you. It was always lots of fun.